there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When we think of dance, we think of freedom. Of moments becoming lost to society, lost to the world, lost to ourselves. But what would happen if dancing became fatal? What would happen if you watched a person dance for so long and so vigorously that they collapsed in exhaustion? Imagine a hypnotized person, eyes rolled up, dancing with a type of dedicated passion that never wavered. Imagine that person dancing, not just for minutes or hours, but for days at a time, without interest in rest, food, or water, with a complete indifference towards concerned onlookers and crowds. Now imagine hundreds of people doing so. A horde of dancers so manic and engrossed in their activity that they could not be bothered with anything else. Dancing and dancing until their bodies forfeited to exhaustion and they collapsed with muscles completely drained from their rhythmic pursuits. This mysterious, contagious dance, both extraordinary and deadly, struck a city on the eastern border of modern-day France in the early 16th century, drawing victim after victim into a type of perverse festival in its streets. The participants, seemingly under some type of spell or trance, could not help themselves. They flailed and jumped and spun until their feet gathered blisters and their bodies completely gave way to utter debilitation. Many even danced until they dropped dead. They called it the Dancing Plague of 1518. To this day, nobody knows its cause or its origins. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Claire. This is our first episode on the deadly dancing plague of 1518, where we will dive into the mysterious dancing phenomenon that occurred in the town of Strasbourg. From July through September of 1518, citizens of Strasbourg abandoned their daily lives to dance. Many who saw the dancers found themselves joining in, unable to stop. 
This mass hysteria seemed to spread on sight. What started this phenomenon? And why, after two months, did it stop as suddenly as it began? If you like the show, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And while you're there, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. On July 14th of 1518, one woman named Frau Trophea took to the streets and began to dance. Most thought it ordinary at first. Perhaps she was escaping the trials and tribulations of being a peasant woman in the early 1500s. Perhaps she was celebrating a stroke of good luck. Perhaps she was simply trying to annoy her husband. But then she continued to dance. And dance. And dance. And dance. Moving and flailing like a woman possessed. Nothing the townspeople, the priests, or her husband could do would stop her, and she went on in this hysterical way for four to six days straight. Within a week, over 30 others had joined her dance, bombarding the streets with their dedicated rumba. Within one month, nearly 400 of Strasbourg's 2,000 citizens were participating in the eclectic dancing phenomenon sweeping the streets. But this was not a celebratory dance. The members of the dancing party would dance until they dropped from exhaustion, or in some cases, dropped dead on that very spot. It was an epidemic that left the city of Strasbourg confused, afraid, and scarred for many years to come. And while the dancing epidemic was frightening, it wasn't the only problem plaguing the Alsace region in the early 16th century. Even before she started dancing, Frau Trophea's life was not a pleasant one. Though it's difficult to learn specifics about her life in particular, there is enough information about the time period to understand the conditions she lived in were not enjoyable. People often remember the Renaissance, that is, the period of European history between the 14th and 17th century, as one of beauty and progress. An emergence from the darkness of the Middle Ages and the terrible reign of the Black Plague that unleashed some of the brilliant foundations that made our modern world. Michelangelo, Galileo, Botticelli, Da Vinci. These are just a few of the artists and brilliant thinkers that emerged from the Renaissance. The invention of the metal movable type printing press in 1450 ensured that new ideas were spread quickly and efficiently, and intellectual Europeans shared concepts of humanism and democracy throughout a land historically dominated by monarchs. But, as is often the case in history, the life of the common man and woman was not so luxurious as the footprints of the Renaissance might suggest. In Strasbourg particularly, a town functioning entirely around an agrarian economy, the well-being of its citizens not only depended on the climate and harvest yields, but also the generosity of a corrupt clergy. 
In the 30 years leading up to the dancing plague, the priests of Strasbourg took advantage of their poorest citizens. They used the power they had within the church to hoard food and supplies during the harshest droughts, and often lived a life of luxury, keeping concubines and taxing the poorest citizens with promises that such fees would help to reach paradise. In 1492, Johann Geiler von Kaisersberg, a scholar and humanist from Strasbourg, often rebuked the clergy who he considered vulgar and greedy. He accused monks and nuns of fornicating and murdering their bastard children, citing crude burials found in Strasbourg's convents. He gave sermons denouncing the priests and gained a following with those who felt taken advantage of. In an attempt to bring the clergy to justice, Geiler took a tour of many of the monasteries around Strasbourg and proved that most of them housed sweet breads, fine cuts of meat, and the finest wine the land could offer. However, the real authority, the Bishop of Strasbourg, Albrecht of Bavaria, was little help as he himself preferred collecting fines from his miscreant priests rather than punishing and purifying them and the clergy continued to indulge. And this type of maltreatment was not exclusive to Strasbourg. The Holy Roman Empire itself was on the brink of dealing with a peasant rebellion. As literacy spread and the general population began to wise up to the priests who took payments with a promise of a trip to the afterlife, resistance began to emerge amongst the common folk of Europe. But Strasbourg, as it was, played a particularly important role in Europe due to its location on the Rhine River and the production of its most valuable resource. That resource was wine. Much of Strasbourg's economy functioned around the sacred grape, and many of its citizens were involved in its production in one way or another. Which meant that the success of the city was based around the growing of vineyards. If these vineyards produced, the city was prosperous and calm, a metropolis that would be a welcome respite to any traveler of the age. However, if they failed, things got a little trickier. A poor harvest with the unfortunate governance of the clergy spelled doom. One bad year could trigger famine, plagues, smallpox, and many other terrifying diseases and hardships. Strasbourg's society was structured so that the oligarchy, consisting of wealthy merchants and urban nobles, could continue their lavish lifestyles in the face of disaster, while the rest of the citizens suffered with each blow, fighting for every scrap of bread they could find. And while there was a growing resentment towards the clergy, and even several failed attempts at rebellion, the general population still feared for their souls and always acted in a way to appease the wrath of God. And it's no wonder. The 16th century was a time when the wrath of God was felt daily. With starvation, famine, and disease running rampant through the countryside, the general population was in a constant and inevitable confrontation with death. This was not the renaissance of Michelangelo and Galileo. The Renaissance that produced St. Peter's Basilica and the telescope. This was a Renaissance that saw its poorest citizens barely clinging to anything resembling a life. 
feces from pigs, chickens, birds, and horses collected across the city. Blood from slaughtered livestock ran into the same river people bathed in and drank from. Peasants used the cobblestones as their restrooms, and the stink and filth of cramped quarters furiously passed the most vile of diseases. Syphilis, the bubonic plague, and smallpox were just some of the diseases that rich and poor alike had to cope with without warning. Living in Strasbourg in 1518 was to truly live in a God-fearing state. The inescapable presence of death could only be attributed to something divine. Was it the work of the devil to entirely disrupt the state of humankind? Or was it the work of God who was displeased with the evolution of the world? Many moralists believed the latter, attributing the difficult times to the impious and selfish actions of the corrupt clergy. As a result, several rebellions were staged in Strasbourg in the early 1500s. However, they were all found out and squashed before anything could come of them though the sentiments that arose from those rebellions remained. Citizens continued to distrust the clergy and the ruling class. Tensions were high. Strasbourg was on the brink of its own destruction, threatened to be swallowed by repeated and sporadic famines of the early 1500s and mismanagement from the city's elite. Things were so close to the edge that after the particularly hot summer of 1516 produced negligent crop yields, authorities issued an order that all publications had to be reviewed by the city leader and the clergy before going to press. It was an act of preemptive censorship, hoping to thwart the leaders of future rebellions. And 1517 was not much better. In that spring, an unexpected cold snap froze the grapevines and destroyed the other subsistence crops growing in the region. Soon after, a violent hailstorm added insult to injury and demolished the already haggard plants. Then, an outbreak of smallpox ravaged the citizens of Strasbourg. Hospitals filled quickly with the sick and the starving, leaving the poorer citizens to sleep huddled together on beds of straw. News in Strasbourg only got worse. Rumors of a bubonic plague outbreak in a nearby town caused panic and the hungry often succumbed to a terrible disease known as leprosy. Because of its extremely contagious nature, lepers were carted to a quarantined asylum to live out their days. And if that wasn't enough, in December of 1517, Many peasants starved or froze in their homes due to the extreme poverty they faced from the year's destruction of their crops. The people of Strasbourg thought, with good reason, that God was coming with a vendetta against the region of Alsace. The destruction reaped by the environment was too great and ruthless to be considered chance. In response, many citizens who worried that the clergy's corrupt nature was bringing down the wrath of God, devoted themselves to the utmost piety. In the early 1500s, Geiler von Kaisersberg, the scholar and humanist, demanded a purging of the clergy. However, the results were terribly underwhelming, and one misfortune after another continued to batter the European region known as Alsace. 
It was in this tumultuous world, on the brink of rebellion, with hospitals overfilled with the sick and the poor, with peasants starving and disease slithering through the masses, that Frau Trophea began her dance. Was it an act of rebellion? A kind of prayer? A way to reach out to the divine for help? Or did she just simply have a sudden and inexplicable urge to dance? If we dive deeply into that fateful summer of 1518, perhaps we can uncover some things about this fascinating mystery. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. And now, back to the story. July 14th of 1518. A day like any other in the town of Strasbourg. Not particularly busy or calm. Merchants coming and going. Storefronts preparing their shops for the day's activity. All seemed normal. Except on one street, where a woman began to dance. Hopping almost frantically from foot to foot, waving her arms about, swinging around her dress and apron with the swaying of her hips. At first, no one thought anything of it. But then the woman's husband started begging her to stop. Though she kept on dancing. Then a crowd gathered to look with curiosity and humor upon the wild woman. But she kept dancing. Then the sun fell and the early darkness of evening came. The woman's limbs, though continuing their jittery waltz, were slowing considerably from fatigue. But even then, she kept dancing. Finally, she collapsed into sleep, and once she had recouped enough... She got up and kept on dancing. The rumors swirled. Many accused Frau Trophea of dancing merely to upset her husband, who was horribly embarrassed and annoyed by the act of dancing. Though as her dance extended from one day to two, and from two days to three, these frivolous rumors died away. Then people started to blame the works of demons, especially ones that encouraged lust in women. Officials believed this version of events and thought that the only way to cure Frau Trophea was through religious piety and ritual. And when authorities finally intervened, which some sources say was after four days and others claim six, Frau Trophea's feet were covered in bruises and sores and cuts. They attributed her dancing to a vengeful saint, Saint Vitus, 
St. Vitus, as legend has it, was a martyr who lived around 300 AD. The story says Vitus had survived a tar and feathering unscathed, tamed a lion, and resisted the seduction of beautiful dancers in order to ascend into paradise. Though the connection between the dancing plague and St. Vitus is not clear, it was a very important and spiritual thing for the people of 1500 Strasbourg to pray to the correct saint for the correct illness. Of course, immediately blaming Frau Trophea's affliction on St. Vitus meant that no one was going to look for another cause. Her problem was considered solved and the case was closed without medical examination. Though, to be fair, their medical capabilities were limited in their own right, and the misery that faced these people every day must have created an atmosphere in which divine punishment felt like a daily routine. After all, what's one hysterical dancing woman when your hospitals are overflowing and mothers are throwing their infant children into the river to give their other, older children, a chance to not starve? After she was taken for treatment to a shrine dedicated to St. Vitus, nobody knows what happened to Frau Traufea. In all likelihood, the dancing disease wore off and she returned to town soon after. However, if she did return around the 21st of July, one week after she started dancing herself, she would have found that she was quite the trendsetter because by then, 30 more people had joined the dance. And within another week, dancers were flooding the streets, all of them looking as though they were cast under a great spell. It's not hard for us to imagine mass gatherings of people in despair. The dancers that occupied the streets of Strasbourg were the downtrodden and those most brutally punished by the difficulties from the years of famine and disease in the early 1500s. If we understood the dance to be a form of protest, or even an attempt at levity and distraction from the terrors of the world haunting the citizens of Strasbourg's daily life, perhaps this epidemic would not stand out as a plague but rather as the mass rallying of denizens trying to find hope in a seemingly hopeless world. But what makes the plague so interesting is the hysteria that came with the dancing. By all accounts, the people in Strasbourg were dancing involuntarily and to a point of great exhaustion. Descriptions claimed they looked crazed, with their eyes rolled up so only the white showed, and their movements seemed frantic and demonic. Onlookers described the outbreak as hypnotically alluring, claiming that only the smallest of glances could draw a new person into the dance. And one by one, the citizens of Strasbourg were pulled into the fray, until the count of dancing members numbered 50 by July 25th. While it may seem an amusing sight to behold, 50 people dancing in crazed and wild unison with an almost orgiastic intensity, the reality was much more grim. Observers of the epidemic describe the dancers as more in a state of distress and hysteria than joy. The sight of the dance was a sight of suffering more than anything else. Which makes it particularly strange as to why people insisted on joining. What about a mass of hysterical people could possibly appeal enough for others to join? 
And it's important to remember how quickly this plague spread. If it really was a disease and not joined voluntarily, it took little to no time for the symptoms to manifest and the dancers to join the fray. The quickness and ferocity of the building masses is certainly a troubling image, and not just to us. The elites of Strasbourg were greatly disturbed by the hysteria plaguing their streets. They formed a council they called the 21, made up of Strasbourg's most experienced leaders to try and solve the problem. The 21 turned to their most trusted physicians, those schooled in the Greek classics, who squashed the rumors of a divine plague and proclaimed that the dancing was caused without question by overheated blood. And with their diagnosis, they gave their cure, declaring in all their glory, the way to solve the dancing plague was more dancing. To prescribe the treatment by the doctors, the town cleared out any building they could to make room for the dancers. They even built a makeshift stage in the central market for the dancers to prance upon. The 21 then hired musicians to try and keep the dancers lively and involved. They tried to feed the dancers and supplied them with water. They even hired healthy men to dance with them in an attempt to encourage them to dance more. Only exhaustion dared to stop the dancers, and they collapsed from time to time. But when this happened, the musicians played more vigorously, encouraged by the orders of the physicians to keep the dancers dancing. But the plan of the 21 backfired. By putting the dancers in the most public of places in Strasbourg, it only ensured that more city dwellers saw them and were drawn into the mystical allure of the dancing plague. Every day, soldiers and physicians led newly affected individuals to the designated dancing area to join those suffering a similar fate. Chroniclers speak of dancers who would not stop for weeks only collapsing from sheer exhaustion, recovering briefly, and then dancing again. Historian John Waller likens the workout these dancers faced to something more difficult than running a marathon. So not only was the population suffering from hysterical dancing, but they also employed a type of superhuman strength to do so. But soon, even the superhumans wore out. The physicians of Strasbourg saw that their experiment was failing. Not only were the hired dancers and musicians not breaking the spell, many of them were falling under the dancing hypnosis themselves. The number of dancers grew and grew, while city officials could only look on in disbelief. And then, the dancers started to die. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Going for your first ever run around the park. 
Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And now, back to Unexplained Mysteries. The Dancing Plague of 1518 is like the premise of a cruel joke or a twisted fairy tale, a story that feels like a distant rumor, unbelievable and outlandish, and full of details that seem completely preposterous. And it sounds absurd. A town full of people unable to stop dancing. A group of physicians that can only prescribe more dancing. But then when you hear that people start to die, and not a small amount of people either, the absurdity is stripped away. Gone, too, is the illusion that this was just a fad or a strange form of protest. The series of deaths that stemmed from the incessant dancing show that this truly was an epidemic. The people of Strasbourg were dancing like it was the last day of their lives. Chroniclers from the 1500s estimate that as many as 15 deaths a day were occurring at the height of the epidemic. This figure suggests that several hundred people lost their lives during the dancing plague. And although it is difficult to determine how inflated or deflated this number is, it is certain the plague caused death and disaster. The constant motion, the scorching sun of summer, the disinterest in basic sustenance, it's not hard to imagine the causes that brought these dancers to their doom. And as they dropped dead to the floor, carried away by family or officials, the others continued their dance, oblivious to the chaos around them. The physicians and the 21 were finding out in the most troubling way that the prescribed cure was a catastrophic failure. In an act of desperation, the 21 attempted to purge the city of all its troubled and immoral citizens. They banished drunkards, thieving merchants, sex workers, ruffians, and gamblers in a last-ditch effort as a type of citywide penitence. They called upon the teachings of Geiler von Kaisersberg, the humanist who demanded a cleansing of the clergy. The magistrates cleared the monasteries of its concubines and lavish indulgences and attempted to restore a trust between the priests, monks, and nuns and the population at large. Though the people distrusted the clergy as immoral and corrupt, they knew too that they were their only direct pathway to God, as the scriptures insisted. The Bishop of Strasbourg ordered a citywide prayer, where wealthy priests, monks, nobles, merchants, and peasants alike knelt together to honor St. Vitus. Even if it was just for a moment, the dancing plague of 1518 stripped away the social lines that so haunted Strasbourg. But the answer to what was causing the epidemic was further away than ever. The council and the physicians were so far beyond a scientific understanding of disease that they attributed its cause to the divine and pursued forgiveness from God rather than looking for a medical cure. There was no consideration of medical treatment for the dancers. At this point, the officials simply focused on stopping the plague's spread. 
since it seemed to be spreading by exposure, a new order for curing the disease was issued to remove all dancers from the public view lest the contagion spread even more. In fact, in early August of 1518, public dancing and music were banned entirely. Music was still prescribed as a cure, but it was done in the privacy of the home rather than in the streets, where the music might attract more onlookers and victims of the dancing plague. But still, the numbers that joined the fray continued to grow. Almost all were now convinced that the dancing plague was a twisted form of divine punishment. God was clearly upset with the vice of the people of Strasbourg and was enacting his fury in a symbolic and deadly manner. This was exacerbated by the fact that the plague seemed to spread only by looking upon the dancers. The 21 continued their attempts to purge the city of its undesirables, and they ramped up their offerings to God and to St. Vitus, whom they believed were upset by the people's ignorance. The council loaded carts of the afflicted dancers and shipped them to the nearby shrine of St. Vitus, the same one that Frau Trophea was brought to, with the desperate hope that this offering would somehow appease the saint's spirit. The pilgrimage appeared to work. In the days and weeks following the 21's orders to pray to Vitus, the dancing plague dwindled to a trickle. And soon, by September of 1518, there were no more dancers at all. It's unknown how many people died in total. Estimates range from as few as a dozen to as many as several hundred. The survivors of the epidemic were often slow in recovery, displaying symptoms of shakes, anxiety, and insomnia for years to come. For them, the dancing epidemic left a permanent and terrible memory. In September of 1518, the ban on public music and dancing came to an end. The gamblers returned and filled the casinos, and the brothels and bathhouses reopened. The clergy re-established their corrupt and manipulative rule, though the population was more wary than ever. It was an interesting and dangerous balance that existed between the people and the clergy. On the one hand, diseases like this reminded the people that they needed the clergy as a direct communication to God. On the other, many felt the actions of the clergy were what brought these epidemics upon them. What remained was a rocky and ill-defined relationship that continued to be tested with horrifying and mystical outbreaks like the Dancing Plague of 1518. Strasbourg returned to normal, though perhaps with a bit more care to its poorer citizens than its contemporary counterparts. A decent harvest brought hope that they would emerge from their suffering, though further east in Germany, new and radical ideals were brewing. A year earlier, a man named Martin Luther had written a document that would change the world forever. He challenged the church and the pope's monetary indulgences, criticizing the manipulation of illiterate but faithful peasants by their literate and corrupt clergy. By late 1518, these ideas spread to Strasbourg, and soon a great peasant revolt would come to Alsace, and the Reformation would strike all of Europe. The Dancing Plague of 1518 
gives us a glimpse as to the world that sparked that revolution. Strasbourg was forever changed by the dancing epidemic. It put the city in a genuine state of crisis for a month as its leaders scrambled to tame the outbreak. But what could have caused this outbreak? What inspired this mass catatonia that challenged an entire city's sanity? And was this the only time in history the world had succumbed to such a strange and mystical plague? The Dancing Plague of 1518 is mystifying, terrifying, and by all accounts, entirely unexplained. However, it was not an isolated incident. In fact, dancing plagues affected Europe in both large and small scale, primarily from the 16th century to the 17th century, though records indicate outbreaks as early as the 7th century. That's almost 1,000 years of sporadic and hysteric dancing. In the early 11th century, 18 peasants were said to have broken into dancing hysterics at a Christmas Eve celebration. In 1237, more than 100 children jumped and danced between Erfurt and Arnstadt in Germany, a distance of about 12 miles, where they eventually collapsed, some of them to their death. This was an event significant enough that it was said to inspire the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. In 1374, in the Rhineland on the border of France and Germany, wild dancers were said to wander from place to place, spreading the craze to local townspeople. Historians claim that thousands of men and women danced and jumped, all while screaming hysterically. But within 10 days, most of the dancers regained control and the citizens chalked up their psychotic behavior to the possession of demons. This, in fact, was a bigger dancing plague than in Strasbourg. However, because of the rise of the printing press in the late 15th and early 16th century, the documentation of the Strasbourg dancing plague is the most thorough and well-kept record allowing us to dive deeply into this most mysterious of diseases. So what was it that struck Europe with these otherworldly possessions? Why did these afflictions flare up sporadically in such a specific region for such a long time? And why did the dancing plagues virtually disappear from record after the 17th century? Was there something in the water? A type of mold or drug that caused hallucinations? Was it a dramatic form of protest against the harsh living conditions? Or was there really something divine and almost entirely unexplainable at work? Next episode, we'll find out. Don't forget to subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. And next week, we'll continue our investigation into the dancing plague of 1518, unearthing some of the fabulous and strange theories that have been proposed over the years. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. 
Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Drew Cole and stars Claire Delamar and Richard Rossner. <laughs>